Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Helen Dale, a lawyer and writer and critic and novelist who has a particular interest in the history of Roman law. We spoke today about how Roman women were treated by the legal system, about how the Romans viewed issues like uh, sexuality and abortion, and we discussed whether or not we are becoming more Roman in some of our attitudes towards sexual issues. As always, you can find Maid Mother Matriarch also on Substack at louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find extended episodes, bonus episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Helen, when we uh, first met um, some months ago and had lunch, I ended up writing an essay, um, which has just recently been published, that was inspired by our our conversation because... um, uh, you had uh, read and reviewed my book very generously, um, The Case Against Social Revolution, and uh, we had a conversation about tensions essentially between Christian sexual ethics and Roman pagan sexual ethics. And my suspicion that I raised over lunch and, and that resulted in writing this essay is that we are in a sense moving back towards a much more pagan way of doing things and of regarding the world, particularly when it comes to, um, well, I, I, my argument in, in this essay is that abortion is a key indicator of this repaganization process in that I, it seems as though we're moving back towards a more Roman way of regarding abortion and indeed um, infanticide. Um, and from your perspective as someone who has spent an enormous amount of time studying the Roman world, including as an archaeologist. What are your feelings on this um, this move in a more pagan direction? I must admit, when I first read a book making this argument, and it, of course, wasn't yours, your book, make, The Case Against a Sexual Revolution, makes a very different argument. Um, I first read a book called Pagans and Christians in the City, which is lurking about in my shelves here somewhere. Um, and I reviewed it some years ago, back in 2019, for Law and Liberty, which is the magazine where I'm senior writer. And Stephen Smith, the bloke who wrote it, is a lawyer, but he knows a lot about theology. So he's kind of like me. He's got the same kind of legal training as I have, but uh, a dabbling, dabbles in theology because he has access to the ancient languages. So he's got quite similar background to me. And he makes an argument that... Uh, Christianity, Christianization in the Western world was incomplete, except perhaps in the United States. America is kind of a special case because of the way Europe expelled its religious extremists and they went to the United States, particularly Britain. But, and his point, his, his sort of main claim is that paganism is just as much a religious sensibility as Christianity. We've got this idea in our head where we tend to think of religion and we define religion and we conceive of it only in monotheistic terms and so we forget that there are other religious traditions in the world which are not like that at all you can even have non-theistic ones like buddhism for example that still has supernatural elements it's just non-theistic but he also his big core thing is that um 
Roman paganism was just as much a religion that provided um, comfort and fra a framing device for people in that civilization as uh, Christianity or Islam or Judaism does for people and the monotheistic traditions or Buddhism or Shinto or Confucianism and Hinduism do for the rest of the world. And he then says that Christianity's victory over paganism was incomplete. And he thinks, and he makes a pretty compelling case for this, although he does leave some points out, which I, I said in my review, uh, that paganism is re-emerging in Western countries as Christianity declines. And his argument is that because the moral shifts that have un have occurred in Western societies have been have had the effect of bringing Western countries into line with pagan morality uh, on particularly on sexual matters rather than Christian morality. And the big case studies he provides are, are of course, over same sex marriage and abortion. But he, he addresses some other issues like the use of religious symbols. When should you use religious symbols publicly and when should you not? And so on and so forth. These were also conflicts in the Roman world as well, when Christians and pagans were in contest and neither was power, powerful enough to knock over the other, which was actually for quite a long period after the Edict of Toleration in, in 313 AD of Constantine's, because only about 10% of the population of the Roman Empire in that period was actually um, Christian. And so they were aware they were massively outnumbered. If, and if they pushed too hard and too fast with this new religious tradition, which is very foreign to, to, to Romans, you would finish up with serious conflict. I mean, this is a society that, like the United States, would resolve serious conflict at the most abstract level by means of bloody civil wars with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dead. Just like the United States, this is where there is a it's legitimate to draw a similarity between the modern hegemon imperial power and the ancient imperial power. You know, a Roman would look at the US Civil War and 600,000 dead and that it was over slavery and go slave revolts. I know what those look like and look at all those dead people. So you, you get that. And so that was Smith's argument. And I thought that there was something in it. And. And it was that that came to mind when we were chatting at that lunch. Because mm. the argument that you will get from a lot of um, a lot of anti-Christians, say new atheists, is that um, once we can kind of shrug off Christianity's oppressive force, then um, we can refashion an entirely new and much more rational, much more enlightened, much less religious sort of dominant ideology. Um, I am by no means original in pointing out that actually what we're seeing with um, progressivism as a dominant ideology is a very long way from being that kind of rational, anti-religious um, way of viewing the world. I mean, there are clearly some elements of progressivism which are Christian-inspired, um, but I think, and I think you agree with me, that actually there probably are only so many ways of... there are. Let me rephrase that. There are probably o only so many ideologies that can function as dominant ideologies in enormously large, complex civilizations, And paganism is one of them. And Christianity is one of them. 
and there might not be very more than that. And so it would probably make sense that once we de-Christianize, that we revert to the old way of doing things rather than invent something entirely new. The problem with new atheism is that it thought, or it um, doing what you should never do as a lawyer, which is ascribing a corporate view to a large number of people, significant numbers of people in the new atheist movement thought that you could do away with religion. And if you did away with it, you would then have basically a sort of enlightenment type society, you know, the kind of world imagined by you know, Adam Smith and David Hume and people like that. And the thing is, not only were Adam Smith and David Hume much more sophisticated thinkers than that, they were not simplistic anti-religious people, particularly not Smith, who was a deist. Um, David Hume couldn't take up the professorship um, of political economy at Glasgow because he'd been too open about his atheism, but Adam Smith could. And even then, they were both very, very nuanced thinkers. And so what happens is if you get rid of one form of religion, you leave and the expression that gets used around the place, you leave a God-shaped hole in society. And people want to stick things in that hole. And at the beginning, when they first, you first get this, you get this bowerbird effect where, and that's what's happened with left progressivism. They've gone around and picked a bit from Christianity. They've picked a bit from Roman paganism. They've actually picked bits from Germanic paganism in the environment movement. You know, this whole sort of sacral nature that it's attached to trees and that kind of thing. That's not even Roman paganism. That's Germanic, as uh, Stephen Smith goes into this quite quite well. I mean, a good e example of the early um, importation of German-style paganism into Christianity is the Christmas tree. Uh, the Christmas tree is not Roman. Lots of uh, Christmas aspects of the Christmas celebration are taken from the Roman Saturnalia, the giving of gifts and the kissing under the mistletoe and that kind of thing. The tree is not. The tree is actually from Germanic paganism, and it didn't actually arrive in the UK until Prince Albert, because he was German, so he brought the Christmas tree when she came across from his country. And so... So what happens is you get this God-shaped hole and people chuck all sorts of things into it and it can look, and that to me, like I look at sort of modern left progressivism and it looks completely bonkers because it's just such a mess. But the thing is, if you look at early Christianity before Constantine, who did not like this sort of schism and it's not because he had a concept of heresy that hadn't really been developed then. It was just because he was he was one of these people who was just impatient with people arguing over incredibly petty details of doctrine. So that's why you get things like the Nicene Creed and that kind of thing is this attempt to to get all this sort of stuff that had just been chucked into the pot uh, that was the beginning of what, what scholars call a new religious movement and try to give it some coherence. Now, that hasn't happened with left progressivism. So you've got Roman attitudes on homosexuality and Roman attitudes on abortion. Uh, but you've got Germanic paganism in the environment movement. Uh, you've got Christian ideals in the valorization of victims. This is a very important part of Christianity. And the argument is made at book length by Tom Holland um, in a book called Dominion which I was supposed to review for a magazine that then went broke. And so I've got Dominion on my, it's in my, still in my review shelves there. There it is. And I read it, but I never got to write the review because the magazine went broke. 
but at least I got the book for free. And uh, it, this is made at, at book length by Holland, and he, he makes out his case. He just builds up such an overwhelming body of evidence on the fact that Christianity did take victims, quay victims. I'm using a philosophical term there or in a lawyer's term. Basically, Christianity argued that victims, just by virtue of the fact that they were victims, should be listened to. Now, people sort of get this a bit wrong with the Roman lawyers, the jurists. And it's not that Romans thought that victims should never be listened to. They just didn't think victims had automatic authority by virtue of their suffering. So the basic Roman understanding, and this is from Stoicism, is that suffering doesn't improve people. It can improve people, but you can't assume it. Something more is needed. And one of the reasons why early, Christi early Christians had to put so much intense focus on arguing that victims did have something to say and you should listen to them just because they were victims is because they were trying to convince a population, particularly once they got to Italy itself, where everybody south of the Po was a citizen. So they were going to the, the heart of the of, of the metropolis, basically, if you want to speak in colonial terms. Um, they had to try to persuade these people that they should listen to a message produced by someone who'd suffered capital punishment. And the thing is, by this period, by the time the first and second century AD had was was around, uh, had come along, the empire was at its most prosperous, a level of prosperity not reached again until the 18th century in Europe, remember this, at its most populous, a level of population, once again, not reached in Europe until the 18th century, you know, the Dutch golden age, basically. And and scholars of Ro the Roman political economy, like Peter Temin calls, wrote a book called The Roman Market Economy, he goes into all the clear metrics, all the evidence base for this. So trying to convince people who are about as prosperous and as orderly and as well governed as you get before the Industrial Revolution, uh, that they should listen to someone that their very good legal system that they knew was very good. They knew that they were an example to the world in this area, that Romans could be very arrogant about the things that they were good at, the same way the Greeks could, and they were good at different things, and the Romans knew that their legal system was very good, had executed, and executed despite what all the gospel stories say and all of the theological disputations afterwards. The ex execution was for a public order offence, the riot in the temple. Okay, so Romans really looked down on this. You know how people react now to street preachers, Demo haranguing uh, to, to, to a Roman or even a Greek too, demagogos. That person is a, de that's the root word for our modern word, demagogue. So Christians who tended to stand on street corners and harangue people, you would get a response from a Roman the same way that you get from modern people of, oh dear, that's bonkers and crossing the street. Get as far away as possible. So that is why they had to put so much emphasis on this, point that victims, just because they're victims, have something to tell us. And there's a serious case to be made that the Christian conception of sainthood, which is where someone has suffered terribly and risen above it to become a remarkable person, was in fact developed to deal with the fact that Romans were very sceptical of the idea that you could suffer terribly, rise above it and become a better person because of this underlying belief that suffering didn't improve people. 
And this idea now of um, victimhood being virtuous is deeply, deeply baked in to the West, as Tom, as Tom Holland argues. And it is completely not Roman. It is the one area where left progressivism and, and I can you know, start summon up from you know like summoning up from Hades and giving them a cup of blood because that was the ancient idea that if you gave a shade from 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 Hades a cup of blood or broth you know blood broth um they would then be able to speak to you that's a sort of very powerful image in both Roman and Greek religions and it's done very movingly and powerfully in Greek theatre and also in the Aeneid you know so they drink a blood broth and then they can speak to you uh, because it gives them a sort of shadow self of aliveness rather than just being a shade and if you summed up summoned up a roman jurist summoned up ulpian or summoned up uh, gaius or or particularly celsus who's the one that nietzsche uses um, in genealogy of morals and showed them this valorization of people who are not only victims but losers people that romans thought of as losers grossly overweight covered in self-harm scars I mean, you know what a Roman response to someone covered in self-harm scars would be? By the name of all that is holy, why didn't you finish the job? Yeah. That would be the response. Okay, so because suicide to a Roman um, was noble, was a noble thing to do. If you, If your life was intolerable or you were being oppressed or you were being in danger, and this is particularly in the military context of being captured and giving away military secrets, then the honourable thing to do was to commit suicide. And the phrase used in, in Latin, I'll translate it into English, is the same as the one used in amongst Japanese troops during the Second World War. There's strong similarities between Shintoism and Roman paganism, was death before dishonour. So, yeah, really different. This is one where there's just no, no overlap at all. <laughs> Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. Yes, and I don't think that most progressives realise quite how much, quite how unusual that way of viewing the world is morally, one, and two, the fact that they owe it to Christianity. Um, 
And I mean, in a funny kind of way, actually, I think that even though so many progressives are very explicitly anti-Christian, and we'll get on as shortly to the ways in which feminism and feminists are often very explicitly anti-Christian, I would argue that actually it's it's they are sort of still manning the gates, defending that particular Christian principle mm. in a way that actually, I mean, it, it remains to be seen how long they can defend that Christian principle. I suspect not an enormous amount longer. I think that once you no longer have anything upstairs, you know, once you've actually removed the theology from Christian ethics, I suspect that the ethical system will eventually crumble and is starting to because we've seen how progressivism, for instance, is you've mentioned abortion already. Uh, a lot of progressives are also very um, welcoming of euthanasia and they do so. That's uh, an overlap with the Roman world. Yes, they were fine with euthanasia and they used opioids to achieve it. Yes. Um, that was considered the quiet way to die. Um, and it's very similar to the suicides of the elderly in Japan. Whilst their society was very respectful to the elderly, um, there's a phrase, mos maorum, uh, means ways of the ancestors. And you think maorum, mos, uh, it's just because it's an irregular. Um, mos, the plural is mores, M-O-R-E-S. And of course, that gives us our modern word morality. But if you talked about mores amongst a group of Romans, it would be what my mum and dad did, what my grandparents did, what granny who came from Pulier and you know, maybe moved to Rome or that, or to get married or something like that, that they would talk in those terms. And in the family on the God shelf, and this is another area where if you've been to Japan, Japan will help you understand. In Japan, they're called a kamedana, those little shelves with, with the... With the uh, household gods on them. In Latin, it's a lararia. And on the lararia, you would have some symbolic representation of the traditional de deities, you know, so you talk about Jove or Hera or, Af or Aphrodite, Venus, that kind of thing. But more commonly, they would be little statues or sometimes if you were posh, a death mask or a representation of your historic ancestors. So grandma, grandpa, particularly if somebody in the family had done something impressive. So some ancestor who was the first in the family to be a Roman citizen, uh, some ancestor in the family who had won a lot of military awards, you know, lot, lots of medals, big chest full of medals, that kind of thing. There would be a little statue or, a de or death masks on the wall of those eminent people in your family. So there's a strong similarity there that that, that ancestor worship is a big part. Which is less of a feature of progressivism. But then, as you say, it's it's a very jumbled um, ideology at the moment. And um, so, so on, for instance, um, euthanasia or abortion, progressives tend to justify both of those things using sort of Christian ideas. The idea of um, protecting and empowering women... Um, the idea that euthanasia is a kindness to people who are suffering, etc. Whereas, am I right that Romans did not justify either of those things using using those kind of ideas? No. What I mean, abortion to uh, okay. That there's to, you need to in Roman law separate out a few things here. I'm going to give you a. It'll take about 10 minutes, but I'm going to try to do Roman Law 101 here, which is basically what you would get in the first 10 minutes if you turned up to Paul Duplessis' civil law class at the University of Edinburgh. 
basically, because you need to know Roman law in order to practice in Scotland. That's where I studied it so that I could I could go into practice in Scotland, which I, I in due course did. Um, there are two great legal systems in the world, only two. You need to understand this. This is where we get super non-PC. Law is super non-PC. And there are two great legal systems in the world, um, and they're both European. And they're jurisdictional rivals. They do do things differently, but they arrive, they tend to arrive at a very, at the destination tends to be very similar because the reasoning that both civilizations engaged in is quite similar. There's a particular style of reasoning that goes with being a good lawyer. These two jurisdictional rivals are Roman law, which is sometimes called civil law or civilian law. And the other one is England's common law, the, the law that was developed in England specifically. For a very, very long time, in fact, for some centuries, people thought that the English had actually copied, the, there was so much similarity, had copied their legal system from the Romans. Uh, but that is not the case. The two civilizations developed their legal systems independently. Uh, for the first four centuries of the development of the English common law, Roman law was actually lost. We didn't know any substantive details about Roman law in Western Europe. So it, would have, it was impossible for both the Anglo-Saxons and the early Normans in what later became the United Kingdom, but at this point was the Kingdom of England, um, to copy it because they didn't have access to it. So these are the two jurisdictional rivals. They bear strong similarities to each other because of the style of reasoning used. Now, what you later get is a divergence between the two for a whole range of historical complicated reasons. And Roman law comes to dominate on the continent. And the common law dominates not only in the United Kingdom, but also through the British Commonwealth. So the, the effect of this, the United States is a common law country. France, Germany, Italy are all Roman law countries. But once again, because because people didn't necessarily want to want to, did not necessarily want to copy the great empire of the 18th and 19th century, which was the United Kingdom, they copied the dead empire. So, for example, and this is going to shock people, Japan is a Roman law country. China, to the extent that it has a law, because I mean that there are problems with the rule of law in former communist countries. This is one thing that communism doesn't do properly: is law. Uh, and so they finish up having to copy another country's system. And so China is also a Roman law country. And it always strikes me because both Japanese and Chinese people have an enormous difficulty with pronouncing the letter R. And one of the first things you learn when you come across Roman law is it was developed by people who uh, speak a language that is very close to Latin, Italian, and Latin and Italian have the same thing in common. I just honestly don't know how Japanese and Chinese lawyers even pronounce managed to do this. They talk about restitutio in integrum and that kind of thing, which is where you have <laughs> a specific performance of a contract. I don't know how they say this. It's just a nightmare. So, so they're your two legal systems. And it's really important to remember that if any country in the modern world has a functioning legal system, it has it because it has copied one of those two, either the English common law or Roman law. And people will often go, but what about Sharia? And yes, Sharia is a legal system or it pretends to be one. And what is the economic state of most of the Muslim countries, even the ones that have uh, great resource wealth? They're incompetently governed. They're full of corruption. Their legal system doesn't work properly. 
and it's basically because Sharia is an incompetently designed legal system for incompetent losers. Sorry, this is really un-PC, but it's... And the area where Sharia isn't incompetent, when traders went through the Indonesian archipelago and to Malaysia, they brought their commercial law with them, Sharia commercial law. And they didn't, there was no conquest by the sword there. Islam did not do its usual thing of conquering people and converting them by force in those countries. Not at all. The reason those people were attracted to Islam is because Sharia had excellent commercial law. Where did Sharia get its commercial law from? It copied Roman commercial law. So closely that you can actually translate back from Arabic into Latin and produce almost exactly what Roman jurists wrote. Modern people have done this. Okay, so that, that's the sort of really un-PC thing here. Now you come, I come to the next part, which is sort of relevant to your sexual politics thing. When we go to the law of classical antiquity, Roman law rather than the law that you associate with what, has, have, what exists now in the European Union and elsewhere, and you come to the status of women and also to the role of the family, it's quite difficult for modern people to do what I, Marxist historians call a class analysis. So I'm not going to do a Marxist class analysis here, but I am going to do a class analysis. Your status in the Roman world had three components. The first question was one of libertas. Were you free or slave? Um, you could be free um, and not race. If you've seen that word race, it just, R-E-S, it just means thing in Latin. Whenever you write, see a lawyer writing a piece of correspondence who puts re or in re first at the beginning of it concerning the thing, um, it's just the ablative form of the word for thing in Latin. So that is the first part of your status. Are you free or slave? The next part of the status is cubitas. Are you a citizen or a non-citizen? And if you're not, how does the law apply to you? And if you are, then the law applies, the Roman, the law of Roman, the Roman for Roman citizens applies to you. And then the final part of your status is familiar. Now, the main thing there is, are you in power, potestas, by someone who is a superior in the family to you, usually associated with the paterfamilias, but not always. Um, in fact, not, not that often after the second century. Or are you suis juris? Are you independent? Do you have full capacity and there is no statutory requirement for you to be legally advised? So I'm now going to speak in terms of the classical period of Roman law, not the law of the 12 tables, which a lot of historians tend to think applies to the whole period, which isn't true. And I'm not going to talk about the law of um, developed by Justinian in the novels. I'm talking about the digest. So for all the Roman lawyers listening, I'm talking about Gaius, Ulpian, Papinian. Those are the, the jurists I'm addressing here. So what you get in the period of classical law is you get quite a high age of capacity. That is capacity to join the army or to get married uh, or to enter into a contract. The age of 16, it settles at. It started at 14, but it finishes up at 16. So like the modern world. And that it also includes the age of consent. So it's quite high. But this is for citizens. This is the jus civile for citizens. So you will get Romans commenting on 13-year-old girls being married off in Greece which we don't do, they say, because we are civilised. But that is because 
of the distinction between citizen and non-citizen. And you get, you also, there is an awareness though that a 16 year old's will can be overborne by a clever merchant or so on and so forth. So you get the capacity built in the Roman law of contract to undo various contractual agreements that are made between the ages of 16 and 25. So the Romans were quite well aware of this idea that people of people's brains not developing until 25. And there's a very moving passage written by one of the jurists about young people of both sexes being talked into contractual agreements in their early 20s and just not having any real understanding of what they were getting into. So they had a good awareness of that. But at 16, you could marry. And at 16, you could also join the army. The, among themselves, among citizens, the Romans did not like boy soldiers and they did not like child brides. And uh, uh, Sue Tregiari, an archaeologist, did quite a lot of study going around Roman graveyards because they, they give dates and times for things and worked out that the average age of marriage amongst citizens for a girl was late teens or early 20s and for a boy it was early tw 20s to mid 20s. So they're quite old. So you get that later marriage, which gives women more opportunities to be educated. One of the effects of that encouragement of citizen women to be educated, and we've got a, a education scholar called Quintilian who spoke about this, and he made an argument to, to encourage Roman parents to make sure their daughters as well as their sons were educated. And he did it in a, in a way that modern people would find quite sexist, but it was very effective on Romans. Do you want your children to be raised by a stupid baba? And it did work. It, this had the desired effect because Romans had quite, you know, the joke from 1066 and all that. They were top nation. So they liked smoke blown up their own bums, basically, the, the imperial power. Now, the effect of amongst that citizen class of somewhat older educated women on marriage is you had a lot of use of this Swiss Eurus principle. Okay, your independent status. So women had full powers to inherit in property law, full power contractual capacity, could be witnesses, uh, could dispose, make their own wills. And like the later common law, the Romans had uh, testamentary freedom. So you literally could leave it all to a cat's home. The, uh, the thing of, of separate estates, like you see in France and to a degree still in Scotland, where you have to leave a certain amount of the property to children or a spouse, is actually a, a side effect of Napoleonic law. That's part of Roman law that comes later. So what you've got is this class of very posh women with a lot of power and a lot of education. And I drew, when we had the lunch together, I drew a parallel between them and some of your modern feminists uh, who are also very posh and who have, have taken command effectively of British public life, I think is probably a fair way of, of, of describing it. And they're brutally unrepresentative of women as a class. And here I am using the Marxist sense of women as a class, you know, scoop them all up and put them in a bucket. They're all women. They all share these characteristics in, in common. They're the ones who can bear children. They're the large gamete, the, the large eggs and all of that stuff. So you had the same thing in the Roman world. So you had this, uh, the citizen class of women, which could be relatively poor women, but before the Edict of Caracalla in 212. Um, so, but who had enormous, and by modern standards, an enormous basket of rights. 
However, no pre-modern state had the state capacity to confer that many rights on that many people en bloc, even the Romans, and they knew they were a well-run society with a good legal system. So, you know, the, the Monty Python joke is true. You know, what have the Romans done for us? You know, clean water, safe to walk the streets at night, all of that kind of thing. Um, they could only have the state capacity, you know, the enforcement mechanisms, the police, the army, the fire service, all the things that we associate with the armed st the modern state, they could only do that for some people. And so that those citizen women were protected and the effect of that was was to push out onto both non-citizen women and particularly slaves all of the bad male behaviour, basically, that we associate with, um, with you know, sort of all the images of the Roman world before the rise of Christianity, you know, like the completely um, hedonistic sexuality, I suppose. I mean, there was even a philosophical tradition called hedonism that held that the highest good is pleasure, you know, that kind of thing. And so what you would get, um, I mean, because women, you had a unilateral no-fault divorce in both directions. So obviously if a husband pushed it too much or hit his wife or that kind of thing and divorced and the property was split and it was like us, you know, in, in the sense that you, the man didn't just keep all the property or automatically keep the kids, they had sophisticated rules about custody for citizens. Uh, so you get this situation where all of that bad male behaviour is just displaced onto non-citizen women and onto slaves. And it's generally accepted by legal scholars that approximately a quarter to a third of the Italian population when the empire was at its height. So the last century of the Republic and the first and second century AD, uh, it was slaves. So much so that the, we actually have speeches from Roman worthies, great and good senators, people like that, saying uh, it's just as well that only a few households make the their slaves wear a lanyard, you know, something like this, with a medallion on it saying basically pro property of Marcus and Julia at number 28, whatever. Um, because if every single slave had one of these, this senator goes on to say, uh, we would see that particularly in the city of Rome itself that we, the rest of us would be outnumbered. We would see how many they are is the phrase that he uses. So this is where you've got this complexity of the, the class system in that it was very good and you can look at Roman law if you just look at the law that applied to citizens and think, my God, that's like 20th century law for women. Remembering, but remembering though, you must remember that this is the jus civile, it is for citizens. And when the Edict of Caracalla happened in 212 AD, for fiscal reasons, it was not because he was an honourable, liberally intended emperor. Pe people have got the wrong idea about this, but purely because it made tax raising easier. Yes, yes, governments always want to raise taxes. Um, he divided the empire into citizens and non-citizens, uh, citizens and slaves. There was the category, the middle category of non-citizens disappeared. And the effect of that is within 50 years, you find all the laws the Roman laws that had once been applied only to citizens, but including for the status of women and in the family, being applied to a group of people called the honestiores, which is kind of means the honourable ones, whereas the humiliores 
got what is what was known as the Peregrine Law, the law that was for non-citizens. Now, sometimes that could be good because the Romans used a legal fiction to allow everybody in the empire uh, access to Roman commercial law, which was very good. So they used a legal fiction. Though, if you litigated, they would pretend for the purposes of the litigation because you had wealthy, lots of wealthy non-citizens uh, that you were a citizen. So you got access to all their great the commercial law, which is terrific. Um, but you very rapidly find human beings cannot stand too much equality. So as soon as the state is expected to protect two thirds of the population and confer the, these very expanded citizenship rights on them, it just stops. Within 50 years, it comes to an end. And so then you really do start to see in that period, poor women just being used basically as instruments, like slaves. And remember the phrase that a, a, lot, of, a lot of Roman jurists use to describe a slave, um, and I'll say it in Latin and then translate it because it's quite telling, is instrumentum vocale, the tool that speaks. It of course makes perfect sense, therefore, that Christianity would be extraordinarily appealing to slaves and to poor women and poor women yes who are getting a terrible deal in the... absolutely on the point literally on the pointy end of a sword yes and when christian sexual ethics enters the scene in the first century um as particularly as interpreted by paul all of a sudden women who are uh socially certainly considered to be unrapeable are they considered to be unrapeable in roman law as no, well no 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 important thing to remember about um the roman law of uh slavery it was a legal status only it was not a natural status the idea that people are natural slaves actually comes from aristotle and it's had very unfortunate effects historically it's why christianity and islam were both able to make arguments about in favor of enslaving black people because it was able to use Aristotle's arguments to say that they were naturally inferior, which meant that they were could therefore be enslaved. No Roman jurist makes this argument. Slavery is a legal status, not a not a moral, not a moral or a factual status. So Roman slavery does not have factual equality uh, inequality built uh, built into it. Romans knew that some slaves were smarter than their masters. The, the, the standard trick in, in posh Roman households of, of buying educated Greek slaves so that your children could be educated at home in both Greek and Latin and be taught all the classics and how to read and recite Homer and all of this kind of thing. Um, they often knew, and we've got correspondence between Romans of both sexes, but overwhelmingly those posh people, they're aware that their slaves have more brains than they do. Um, so you don't have the you don't have this factual inequality. It's a legal status only in in the Roman world. Uh, Roman law divided things that they saw in the world in this case into the jus naturale, the natural law, and the jus gentium, the law of nations. And slavery is part of the jus gentium, not the jus naturale. Uh, remembering, of course, natural law to a Roman is nothing like the natural law that you associate with Christianity. Natural law in, to a Roman is present in nature. So, I mean, it is, Matt Ridley uses this expression because he's read a lot of Lucretius, who was a Roman writer who, who prefigures Darwin in a lot of ways. So in a sense, their civilization is Darwinian before Darwin. They think like that naturally. Okay, that's the way they, they conceive of it. 
the Euskentian, the law of nations, are the, yeah, the they, they see slavery everywhere, and the jurists comment on this. Everybody seems to have slavery, but they make they then go on to observe. But no one would agree to doing this without being trained. And the analogy that is drawn is with you, you don't get on a horse's back unless you've broken the horse. You don't stop a dog from biting people or from biting the sheep or biting or herding or doing its job until you've trained the dog to the whistles and the commands that we associate with the herding breeds like collies. They had them too. So nobody would do this off their own back. They have to be forced to do it. So therefore, it's a legal status. It's not a natural status, which was why the Roman system of slavery was so open. You could be manumitted. You could go from slave to citizen, often in relatively rapid progression, and people of both sexes and all sorts of backgrounds did. And they typically, this is why you can find out so much about it, is they would put it on their tombstone and boast about it. So you find all this information in archaeological digs. If you find up a broken up Roman graveyard, it's a, quite a lot of fun to go and put all the tombstones back together, uh, particularly from the early period because the Romans burnt like Hindus. You had a big pyre burnt and they gathered up the ashes in an urn and they would then put the urns into what was known as a columbarium, which is basically a pagoda. And on the front panels in front of each little urn in the pagoda would be information about the person whose ashes were there. And so you find out all this information about them, including inevitably the brag about, I was manumitted by da-da-da-da-da, and I went on and did da-da-da-da-da-da, and they're very, very... <laughs> this is where it, it, it is a little bit like watching Lazio, you know, this is where Italians have not changed. <laughs> so. um, but am I right that um, when uh, a woman, or indeed a boy or man, was... Uh, legally enslaved by someone they had uh, the master had unrestricted sexual access to them yes and indeed, that is correct and indeed that yeah. was considered so to be think in terms of rape was possible but it was legally irrelevant it had yes. no force in law so this is a society that basically govern its morality doesn't really come from religion the, both greeks and romans park their morality somewhere other than religion for Greeks, they, they come up with all their moral thinking through philosophy. For Romans, to the extent that they do do moral thinking, it's baked into their legal system. Yes, and I think actually you mentioned to me um, examples of um, wealthy Roman women actually encouraging their husbands to have sex with their slaves mm -hmm. as a as a as a way of making them sort of leave them alone like don't don't oh, basically, me. Oh, not tonight marcus i've got a headache the slave quarters are that way yes there are records of this <laughs> you know and so you didn't because the thing is roman marriage the effectio maritalis so it's courtship marriage it wasn't arranged or not fu not fully arranged maybe partly arranged but but it was not like you see in india where the bride and groom hadn't met each other and that kind of thing that we inherit courtship marriage from them okay this is there there are things that Christianity, my friend Lorenzo Warby, who I, is a medievalist, who I get to write pieces for my substack, calls it the Roman synthesis. And the Roman synthesis is female consent to marriage from the Jus Civile. Um, don't marry your cousin. So dislike of consanguinity. And um, yeah, don't marry your cousin, dislike of consanguinity and monogamy. They're all Roman, and they actually persist through uh, the whole of the, what people call the Dark Ages, even when other aspects of Roman law are lost completely, 
yeah, and they have to be rediscovered in Bologna in the 13th century and that kind of thing. Uh, those three things persist and the Christian church takes them incredibly seriously to the point where they actually go further than the Roman laws on consanguinity. They start saying, no, your second and your third cousin is forbidden to you as well. Obviously, both civilizations had dispensations. The Habsburgs would not have been able to exist with all the inbreeding and those horrible, funny jaws and whatnot. They would get papal dispensations. The Romans had them too. You know, you would get a senator, uh, a, a, usually in the imperial household, someone wanting to marry a relative, a cousin or something, and a specific piece of legislation would have to be passed through the Senate to allow them to do it. And every time you get a record of it, there's some posho doing this, um, the Roman historians are horrified. You know, so you see Tacitus or Suetonius going absolutely up the wall because their society hated consanguinity. Um, that, that comes into Christianity and it's actually incredibly important because Christianity grew up in the Roman Empire, so it took on those three Roman traits. But one of the characteristic, one of the, and you know this is probably as an anthropologist, but uh, is that monotheism, because it breaks up the traditional rules about avoiding marrying bloodlines too close that exist in a lot of forager civilizations like the Aboriginal cultures and their skin groups and that kind of thing. They're incredibly careful about making, because they're small groups, about making sure that people don't marry someone who's too closely related. That you, There's lots of that in the anthropological record and, and in pre-Christian societies. Monotheism, because it doesn't like kin groups of that sort, it breaks that. But then you get, and this is why this is a pervasive problem, so much so that it's causing health issues now, through the Islamic world of cousin marriage. And Judaism used to have it as well, but very fortunately, Jews got their wits about them quite early and they also have all the genetic tests and everything for Tay-Sachs and so on and so forth. So you don't get that problem, but it did used to exist. So there was, the two other great monotheisms have a terrible problem with cousin marriage. Christianity absolutely does not. They took on the Roman synthesis and then they took it further. They actually made even stricter rules at various uh, church councils, papal councils, about not marrying people who were biologically related to you. You could even get marriages annulled after you'd had kids if you worked out that you would, you'd accidentally married your cousin. The famous example, of course, being um, Eleanor of Aquitaine got her first marriage to Louis um, in France, got it annulled, and that had two kids. And she subsequently was able to marry Henry II and have, I think, another six kids or something like that. And she got it annulled, even though there'd been two legitimate children, which were accepted as legitimate, and the church did not query this one little bit, um, but it was annulled on the basis of consanguinity. So this is actually really, really important. The Romans didn't like consanguinity for whatever reason, but it was part of their culture. We don't know. It's lost in the mist of time. We can't reconstruct all of the 12 tables of Roman law, so we don't know exactly what's in it was in it but clearly this is a really early prohibition and uh, so that passes into christianity and the christians absolutely run with it the difference is that you didn't have irrevocable consent with roman marriage uh, if one of the parties wanted out they could get out they knew that it was going to cost them for example a, a lot of posh roman women were dowered so they come with a big dowry but that dowry did not become the man's always was the woman's and what would happen is that the, if, men, if a man borrowed from his wife, wife's dowry with her consent, he couldn't just take it, he had to, had to be with her consent, and then they subsequently divorced, then he had to, there is a, in commercial law, there is known as a principle known as priority of creditors. 
So basically, which creditor has to be satisfied first before you go all the way down the line? And if you've been involved in a in a winding up procedure or a corporate insolvency, you would know that typically um, the secured creditor, often the bank, um, is first in line and then it goes all the way down the line to the unsecured creditors who might finish up getting two pennies in the pound if they're very lucky. In the Roman world, the top of the priority, this is known as a priority list in commercial law, the top of the priority list was the wife's dowry. So when they split, um, it was so strictly enforced, this rule, that even money that the man had made before he got married, the courts could claw that money back to make sure the dowry was repaid in full. Now, obviously, you can see this is a pre-industrial society. It has a very minimal welfare state based on goods in kind rather than money. Now, this is the dole, the corn dole that you hear about in Roman law. So it's a way of making sure that if you, you don't finish up with a single mum with a bunch of kids with no money. That's the logic behind it. It's a perfectly logical system. Um, so you you get this... So that's sort of the, the big difference is you don't have the irrevocable consent. So the Romans had a perfectly clear conception of what rape in marriage would look like. They wouldn't, they would be disinclined to prosecute it. That's the difference between us and modernity. They wouldn't necessarily see it as a crime, but they thought that any man who did it, um, if he finished up divorced and with a great deal of money being picked out of his pocket, then the response of the jurist would have been, well, that serves you right, doesn't it? So <laughs> it's... Yeah. So yeah, it's just a really different system. Yeah, but then there are also some ways in which some of this rings kind of familiar. You know, the fact that we do now actually, we we the rights bestowed on particularly wealthy female citizens are now rights that modern women have recently come to enjoy. But then I would also argue to some extent that we we are being drawn to the same um Roman system of basically using a class of poor women to soak up excess male oh, that we absolutely sexual desire. Are. This yeah. is one point of yours that you made at that lunch we went to, and I'm going to direct your listeners to the um, the essay that Louise wrote, uh, which she very kindly shared with me to read and make a few little Roman law comments on um, b before it was published. Uh, does this very well. And it may be, um, you read the section on the way, the way we, basically the Roman world had the state capacity to protect a class of women, a restricted class, a large but restricted class of women. It lost that capacity over the course of about 50 years after the Edict of Caracalla in, in 2012. And uh, then was only able to do it because then the, the dividing line became no longer citizenship but money and it could only do it for posh people, posh women. And it's it's I think it's quite notable. It's fairly well documented now. I think Tom Holland has written a paper on this, but then there are other people have written about it as well, that the last group of people of both sexes to be persuaded into Christianity were the posh. They were the last to fall over and they fought the hardest against it. And they also made arguments that sound to us like modern liberalism. Like there's a very late senator called Symmachus who uses the analogy of truth as light on a hill. Imagine a bonfire on a hill. 
And he says, you Christians, you're so convinced that you've got the truth and you think that nobody else has got the truth, including people like me. Is it not the case that we've all got our own paths, our own ways of climbing up that hill to finding the light on the hill and and uh, and finding truth? And you read that and it's an incredibly moving, well-written passage. This, is, this guy's a senator. You know, he's a, edu educated in rhetoric. He was probably a lawyer before he became parliamentarian. And it's beautifully written and it's very appealing to a post-enlightenment sensibility. But the thing is, this is not an enlightenment world. He was trying to make an argument for Roman paganism, which is literally all of these different religions have to rub along together or otherwise we are going to cut each other's throats. So it was a completely instrumental argument. It was not an argument about human liberty. And of course, that was the argument that eventually ended the wars of religion because that's what happened in Europe is we all did cut each other's throats. We had the 30 years war and laid Germany to waste and wiped out a third of its population and all of that kind of kind of thing. But yes, yeah, so Simicus wasn't a liberal. You can see Romans and you can see them arguing. Gosh, they sound like liberals, but they're not. They're absolutely not. Um, and, and going back to um, Stephen Smith's Pagans and Christians in the City. Um, so his argument is that Christianity never really won completely. It was always no, and kind that's of, not an argument I'd heard before. It's very convincing, though. I think he makes a really strong case. So, so he argues that, that, that Christianity was sort of layered on top of paganism, but that in a sense, paganism actually probably is closer to human instincts than is Christianity. And to some extent, what Christianity does, for instance, with something like um, male sexuality, where what the Christian sexual revolution did was to basically encourage men to behave more like women, to be more monogamous and more restrained and chaste and all of this. Um, that's not actually sort of an instinctive thing for humans to do by any means. So to some extent, Christianity, or indeed, as we've already discussed, um, the uh, valorization of weakness, it, you know, yes. it doesn't quite actually ring true to most people's instincts to, to consider weakness and suffering to be virtues, to consider women to be sort of possessed of um, innate status, you know, all of these Christian ideas actually kind of run against the grain a little bit of human instinct. And and that's sort of the point of Christianity that you're, you know, you're a sinner and you have to try and try and do better. Essentially, you know, it's kind of designed to be an aspirational yes. model, but it also has a, has a tough task on its hands in trying to dissuade people from following their natural instincts. And one of the things that you've um, you've written about elsewhere is infanticide. Uh, I want to end uh, end the main part of the conversation on that cheery topic. Um, the Romans condoned infanticide, absolutely performed an enormous amount of it, and actually, it's a very distinctive feature of early Christianity that Christians were opposed to infanticide and also to abortion. Not um, just Christians; it's very important in this context to acknowledge, just as Christianity learnt not to marry your cousin from the Romans, Christianity also learnt not to commit infanticide from the Jews. Very, very well documented amongst both Roman historians themselves because they observed this amongst the people that they had conquered, the Jewish people, because they conquered what was the ancient province of, of Judea, which is modern Judea, gives us the name and the word for the people and all of that. They observed this amongst them. And also when Jewish people who had become Roman citizens were trying to explain to Romans uh, to a Roman audience, the difference between their religion and Roman religion, you you get them in great a great deal of detail. So there is a, a, a Jew whose name is Josephus, 
which is basically they've just Romanized his Jewish name, which was Yusuf. And you've got to remember the Judaism at, at that time, they spoke, a la- they spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and Aramaic especially sounds quite close to Arabic. So when I, 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 I used this fact when I wrote this book, Kingdom of the Wicked, which you'd read, um, which is what would have happened if the Romans have had an industrial revolution, I quite deliberately uh, transliterated all the Jewish, ancient Jewish characters' names in rather than using Hebrew or Aramaic, which are Aramaic's unfamiliar and Hebrew is associated with the state of Israel, I deliberately transliterate all of them into Arabic <laughs> for this reason, because they're really quite close. So yes, the prohibition on infanticide in Christianity inherits that and takes it really seriously, the same way they take the prohibition on cousin marriage. I'm not saying just because you didn't think up an idea, it's not good. Um, but in this case, the prohibition on infanticide, it comes from Judaism. Mm. And um, and is a very marked difference between Christian and Roman. Absolutely. The Romans all, Romans all comment on it. When they comment on the differences between Jews and, and Romans, they make some quite nasty remarks about Jewish men. Uh, they won't take direction from Roman women. You know, so they mean, that's in Tacitus. And th- they mean there because in their society, status was to do, the, remember the division between libertas, familia, and kibitas. So this is a posh citizen woman. You are a Jew who may have been captured in war and enslaved. It doesn't matter that you're a man and she's a woman. You have to do what she says. You're a slave, race, thing, pro- property, um, and your sex basically ceases to matter. So you get that observation. The next observation that will be, will be made is the Jews hate same-sex attraction. Um, they don't like men sleeping with men or women sleeping with women. Um, I want to and, talk about this more in the extended section because I think there's a lot more to say about homosexuality, yeah. And then the next observation that will be made by a Roman writer and also by a Jewish writer like Josephus, who I mentioned, um, will be that Jews do not practice infanticide and they have very large families. But one of the things that you've noted noted elsewhere is that, um, yes, as soon as Christianity comes to dominate, um, infanticide is, is criminalised and remains criminalised. I mean, it is still criminalised, although, as I as I mentioned in my piece, there are some people who are um, pushing against those laws. Um, for instance, Canadian euthanasia has been proposed to be extended to um, babies. Abortion clearly has been... Um, legalise across across the rich world across the formerly um christian world but as you as you've written elsewhere you know just because infanticide is criminalized doesn't mean that it doesn't go on um and in the period before decriminalized abortion there was a lot of infanticide that went on and one of the things that's really striking actually when you look at the um court records is how rare it was for it to be prosecuted and the 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 because it brought the cpa the CPS into disrepute. There's a principle, your American listeners will be more familiar with this than British listeners, but it happens here too. You may have seen news in the reports occasionally. It hasn't happened recently because basically they've turned the public against them. But initially with uh, some of the people who pulled down statues or involved in extinction rebellion protests where people didn't really know what they stood for, jurors would be sympathetic. And even when the the crown had them, and I'll use the, the police procedural expression, even when the Crown had them banged to rights, you would get the jury acquitting. 
that's known that's a, got a technical legal name it's known as jury nullification which is where even when the law is clear and the case and the and the, and the case is proved and the, the crown case is strong the jury acquits uh, you get this, you've got it in situations, the, at first instance, you've got it with the Colston statue, a couple of the Extinction Rebellion ones. They've now worn out their welcome and jurors are starting to bang them up, um, or starting to convict and then judges bang them up. With the mo And the most recent one that, I'm not sure when this podcast will come out, but the most recent one, the ones who closed down the Dartford tunnel are a deep poo and they're getting a custodial a big custodial and that is basically because the greenies have worn out their welcome jurors are kind of and the romans romans had juries as well but there were 15 in their jury rather than 12 and scotland still has that by the way um the uh, jurors are basically a, a repository of the collective wisdom of civilization and that's why we use them and that was the roman argument for using them and it's also the common law argument for using them and it's one that's been borne out immensely in both civilizations and um, as you've said to me juries are pagan juries are pagan and the way you you show this is um and it's worth looking at the debates because they've got a contribution from lord uh, the, the debates in the house of lords and this is when the, the law lords sat in the lords which i actually think was a terrible when blair hived off the supreme court and took the law lords out of the out of the uh, upper chamber, I think he did a terrible disservice to the country because it was very good to have those judges in there who knew what would happen if you, the law of unintended consequences, who forced people to think their thoughts through to the end when it came to legislation. So you've got Lord Atkin, who's any lawyers listening to this, Donoghue and Stevenson judgment, really, really important application of the Roman law of delict to the common law. And you get the fusion of the two systems when it comes to claims in negligence, duties to the neighbour. So Lord Atkin, just about as high up the tree as a judicial figure can be, talking in the Lords about passage of the infa uh, infanticide legislation in, first in 1922 and then it was amended in 1928. And he says, you look at the court records that every time um, abortion or infanticide is prosecuted, and we don't prosecute it very often, and the reason we don't is because it brings the law into disrepute, because if you get reputed jury nullification, that's what happens. The law falls into desuetude is the expression it becomes a dead letter the drug laws are like that in the united states yeah that that's why the war on drugs was just such a massive failure ju failure jury nullification basically wrecked it so lord atkin talks about abortion and infanticide and the difficulty of getting juries to convict and he says it looks like a conspiracy it looks like the jurors have conspired with the defense to avoid there ever being a conviction and the response of Parliament, Parliament makes the law, lawyers interpret the law. The response of Parliament and sovereign Parliament is to hive infanticide off, to not treat it as murder, to make it a separate offence with much, much weaker, lesser penalties, almost never a custodial. And the reason for that is because jurors would sit there in the deliberations. Well, according to Lord Atkin, obviously we can't breach the sanctity of the the jury deliberation room you can in america but you can't hear uh, but lord atkin i think is right when he says they sit there and they imagine it happening to them being too poor to raise a child um likewise with abortion you just can't secure a conviction so with abortion for example initially they tried to prosecute the woman never got a conviction i don't think there's a record of a single one certainly not in scotland there isn't where i've actually pursued this to the bitter end because to write that piece for the cato institute that you cite in your essay um, there certainly wasn't one in Scotland. 
so what happens then is you uh, it's treated separately because you can't secure convictions. Uh, they initially pursued the women, couldn't secure conviction. Then there became the policy of, of trying to prosecute the doctors. And if the doctor was a scam artist and charging the women a lot of money more than other doctors, and you even got this weird thing that this is actually dragged across from the civil law, from, from the law of damages, they would work out if an abortion doctor was charging a lot more than all the other abortion doctors, but this was supposed to be illegal. And if he was charging a lot, the jurors would look, now you're a rip-off merchant. <laughs> And then he would get convicted, but he wasn't convicted because he was an abortionist. He was convicted because he was charging too much. So this is why the law changes, basically. It brings, you can't have repeated jury nullification. It makes the law a dead letter. All of which is to say that Stephen Smith is right and that actually Christianity never quite won. And probably what we're seeing now is yes, de-Christianisation, but de-Christianisation that reveals a deep layer of paganism that goes, as you say, back millennia. Our, our, our laws are rooted in Rome. Our, um, our actually our whole way of seeing an enormous number of things is sort of deep within that 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 cultural memory. Well, and it's the the thing is, Europe especially, not England. England is special and separate, and uh, I've actually practised for longer in a common law country than I have in a Roman law country, but I've mainly talked about Roman law. England is very special here because the common law is a creation of a Christian people, not a pagan people. Um, it's one of the reasons why the status of, of women, you know, coverture, for example, women losing contractual capacity on marriage, that's a common law thing, doesn't exist in historic Roman law, legislation actually had to be passed in European countries to produce something like it. And that sort of legislation wasn't universal. It wasn't, for example, ever enacted in Scotland. So Scotland, Scottish married women always retained their property. And this has little odd effects. And I will tell you two little funny ones to finish. When the Married Women's Property Act was passed, it was a statute that only needed to be passed in England and Wales. Scottish women didn't need it, didn't need to be enacted for Scotland because Scottish women had full property rights. When, that's the first little funny bit, in 1832, when the first reform bill was passed, it specified male electors. The effect of that, there's actually quite a good little website on, I think it's on the Scottish Parliament website, but it may be on the House of Commons website, one of the effects of that was to disenfranchise a large number of Scottish women who could vote because they met the property qualification, because the legislation before the 1832 First Reform Bill didn't specify male elector. So there's two that. little funny funny bits yeah. of legal history for you, for your listeners. <laughs> Thank you. There is so much more to say. Um, I want to talk in the extended section about Roman attitudes towards homosexuality and, and versus Christian, because that's also... Um, very very interesting and 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 obviously has um contemporary resonance before that we do that though helen where can people find uh more of your work and and what of yours should they read if they want to learn more about this subject um i am senior writer for law and liberty which is owned by an organization called liberty fund which is actually one of the 20 largest think tanks in the united states uh, Liberty Fund is focused on law and economics. I write for the legally focused magazine and so do lots of other lawyers. They do occasionally get non-lawyers to write for them, but the preference is lawyers. 
However, the brief that we are given, all of us who write for the magazine, and it's a bipartisan magazine, so you'll get some left pieces and some right pieces. The brief that we get is that we must present the law to the educated general reader. So if I write something that's too lawyerly and directed at other lawyers, I'll give you an example. If you go and read my review of Louise Perry's book, um, Case Against the Sexual Revolution, there's quite a long passage in there where I discuss what Louise did in her organisation we can't consent to. And that was too loyally. And so the wonderful Brian Smith, for whom I have a great deal of time, who's the editor-in-chief, said, you need to make that simpler. And so I had to go away and rewrite that passage so that non-lawyers like Louise, who could read the review of her book, could understand e exactly what I was saying. So that is that is where most of my legal writing is. I write for quite a lot of other outlets, not necessarily on legal matters. I write for CapEx. I write for The Spectator. I've written in the past for Quillette, although I haven't done anything for them for the last couple of years. I write fairly regularly for The Australian. Unfortunately, like The Spectator, those two are paywalled. Um, so, um, and I'm not, ex particularly with the, the Australian, I'm not expecting people to take out subscriptions to a paywalled newspaper in which they will have very little interest. Um, so those are my sort of general, um, uh, general kind of writing outside of uh, non-lawyer things. I have a substack where I, it's just helendale.substack.com, um, where I, I write sort of things that amuse me and I don't always write things. And I have two other writers who I have, because enough people have taken out paid subscriptions um, for me to pay them. Um, a chap called Lorenzo Warby, who's a medievalist, who will often do, whenever I discuss medieval aspects of medieval history here, I am relying on knowledge that I got from Lorenzo uh, because I'm not a medievalist, I'm a classicist and a lawyer. And so he is uh, one who writes quite a lot for my Substack. And another lady I've just introduced her, her name is Paula Wright, and she's a biologist at Imperial. And so I've just published a piece of hers about conviction rates. So obviously it's an overlap. She's a biologist, but they're very good at statistics and I'm a lawyer. So I'm interested in things like conviction rates and so on and so forth. And there will be more, if more people take out paid subscriptions, I will pay, I don't need the money. I'm a retired corporate lawyer. Um, but if um, other people, if people take out subscriptions, I just give Lorenzo and Paul of the money because, and whoever else comes along because uh, they have interesting things to say and I want to publish them. <laughs> so, so that's that's where I am. I've written three novels. Um, I'll only, Louise has read this one. It's a two book series. There will not be a third book. Please do not try to talk me into writing a third book. Kingdom of the Wicked, book one, and Kingdom of the Wicked, book two. Uh, speculative fiction uh, based on what would have happened if the Romans with that moral system, which Louise and I have been discussing for the last hour or so. What if they'd had an industrial revolution? This being a society that does not believe in the equality of persons. You know, they just don't believe it. So even when they do have modern science and tech, they still have those pagan beliefs about the fundamental inequality of persons, um, fact, both factual and legal inequality. So you've got a scene there where an otherwise quite liberal uh, sounding Roman lawyer, they can sound quite liberal because of their views about abortion and homosexuality and whatnot, is just casually mentions to a Jewish client who's horrified by this. Um, oh, well, you're a citizen, so you can't be flogged. 
non-citizen can be. Um, anybody familiar with the Gospels is familiar with Paul doing the very, very, anyone who's been on holiday in the continent and had to deal with the gendarmerie. You know, they're, they're about to line him up and flog him because he's been an annoying street preacher. Romans didn't like it. The demagogus, Romans didn't like them. And so he's about to be lined up and flogged. And he just goes into his uh, into his toga and pulls out his citizenship papers. You can't do that. I'm a citizen. And the soldier puts his whip down and all the rest of them back right off. That's a bit of the Gospels that's a very, very true and accurate understanding of the way Roman law worked and the difference in the first century AD between citizen and non-citizen. And so I've just transported that across to those two novels. What would this world look like? And I was a little bit alarmed because quite a lot of people wrote to me and said they wanted to live there. And it's not dystopia. I don't write dystopias, but I didn't set it up as an ideal either. And people were writing to me saying, oh, I'd quite like to live in that society. And I'm just going okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as discussed, maybe if you're a posh female citizen, it would have been... It, it would have been, been all right, right yeah. Oh, well, I show that. The, the posh ones are having a great time. They're, they're, it's fabulous for them, um, both men and women, the poshos. But I make it very clear the way everybody else is tr being treated. And I had to sort of draw on imagery from, like, the scene, for example, where they clean out the um, – they don't like people living in the rubbish tip. And it looks like it looks like South Africa during apartheid, um, that kind of thing. And I did that deliberately. I wanted people to understand what a society – is like, even with modern science and tech, that just doesn't believe in the moral equality of persons and actually thinks it's a very silly idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I would encourage everyone to read Kingdom of the Wicked. It is absolutely fascinating. Um, Helen, thank you so much for that whistle-stop tour through um, yeah. <laughs> Roman law, and particularly it pertains to women. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing.